Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns and we've got a vaccine. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. My name's Noah Baker and joining me this week is a new voice to Coronapod, Holly Else. Holly, how are you? Hi, good. Thanks. A bit hot, but doing all right. Yes, quite warm over here in the UK, although it is all over the world, so I don't want to complain. So listeners to the Nature podcast will likely have heard your voice before, but this is your Coronapod debut. So can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do at Nature? Yeah, sure. So I cover the community beat, and that means sort of stories that are important to all scientists, no matter what their discipline. So I write about publishing, promotion, criteria like metrics, efforts to diversify science, you know, efforts to improve research culture, anything juicy and exciting. That's my bag. Right. And this week, the story we're going to talk about is COVID related, but it's also kind of very linked to policy and big data, which is kind of why it starts to fall within your sphere. It's a large research program, specifically in the UK, but there have been similar ones elsewhere in the world, to try to understand the transmission dynamics of COVID in large events. So specifically things like sporting events, perhaps large music gatherings, nightclubs, these kinds of data are not necessarily well known. Yeah, so I've been looking at the UK's efforts, and actually some other countries in Europe are also doing work on this, but the UK has sort of the biggest programme in the world on this, trying to understand what helps the coronavirus spread in mass gatherings at sporting events mostly to sort of tie in with the start of the Tokyo Olympics. And so that is something that researchers want to understand. As we've often found in the pandemic at every step with this new virus, we need some data to have a good understanding of how it's going to go forward. So whenever there's a change in policy, in theory, we would like, certainly within nature and scientists would like there to be some data underpinning that decision. And we don't know exactly how coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 might spread in that kind of environment because many countries have sort of shut those down very deliberately as a public health measure. So tell me, what was the rationale behind the research that was supposed to underpin these sort of policy decisions? We'll get into whether or not it has actually underpinned them later on. (laughs) Spoiler, you won't be surprised by the answer on that one. But yes, so it was designed to help inform the UK's 
gradual opening up of society, you know, the lifting of restrictions that we've all been living under and how it could go about mitigating the risks. And tell me, what was the kind of design like? Because, you know, in your story, you describe this as tens of thousands of people that have been to these events have been consenting individuals and essentially an experiment, right? That's what this was. Exactly. And it's been broken down into three phases. So the only part that we actually have any data on is the first phase with the pilot phase. And that involved nine events, which took place earlier this year. And these were the FA Cup final at Wembley. Another one was the Brit Awards, which is a big music award ceremony. So people who attended these events did so as part of this research study. They gave the consent, obviously, to be part of this. And prior to attending the events, they all had to take a lateral flow test to see if they were carrying the coronavirus. And then they went to the events and the scientists who are running the events research programme did lots of analysis on how they moved around the venue, whether people adhered to social distancing, whether they wore face masks. They took measurements of CO2 in the air, which helps to understand the ventilation in the venue. Yeah, so these were relatively in-depth studies. This wasn't just a case of test some people, send them to the event, test them again, see if they got more COVID or less COVID. They wanted to understand how that might work within the venue so that they could really have more fine grain policy decisions at a time when we might want to open up. Now, again, we'll put aside the fact that in the UK, it has opened up now. But the idea was, you know, are there going to be specific policy recommendations that we could make that would really limit transmission? This all sounds very good on paper. How successful was it? Well, as I said, we've only got the results from the first phase and that took place a fair bit earlier this year when the levels of the virus circulating in the population were a lot lower than they are now. The Delta variant, which we all know is more transmissible, wasn't the predominant variant at that time. It was around, but it just wasn't causing the havoc it is now. And also, there's lots of competing interests in a study like this. So the scientists want to know what's the risk factors, what happens, how many more people get it if you do this versus that. The people who run the events, they want the events to go ahead. The public health people who are involved in these studies want everybody to stay safe. I mean, everybody wants everyone to stay safe. That's not to say the scientists and the event organisers don't want that, because of course they do. But there's lots of different priorities jostling in this big mix, basically. So what you've seen happening is the preventative measure of everybody taking a lateral flow test. Although they're not, you know, 100% accurate, they are screening out now the majority of people carrying the virus from attending the events. And another big obstacle that they faced was that certain people within the experiment were advised to take a pre and post event PCR test. And the compliance rate with that was really, really low. So we already had a low level of circulating virus. We didn't have the most transmissible variants that we do now. And the vast majority of people who were attending were not carrying the coronavirus. So what happened was the data on how many people potentially caught coronavirus at these events was just so small that the scientists were not able to make any conclusions really about the transmission of the virus in large events and the risks that they may pose. They were only really able to look at sort of proxies for how the virus might spread. So the ventilation with the CO2 levels that I talked about and whether social distancing was adhered and face masks used, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, because if you look at the sort of results that came back from this first report, the numbers do look very small. It's like in the tens of people that had COVID at the end of these events. And you think, well, if this is 40,000 people, that looks like the event's pretty safe. But of course, you need to take all of this with this massive pinch of salt. That part of the point of this from a public health perspective was to try to screen out anyone that might have had COVID before they even got into the venue. So whether or not you're actually getting a real representation of what it might be like if people could just enter a venue without any of these measures in place is is really hard to tease apart. And so, you know, phase one, it's useful, but whether or not it provides anything that policymakers can actually use is questionable to an extent. Yeah, and I think that's why they sort of also collected all this other data. I think the scientists knew from the outset that this might happen. So that's phase one, which perhaps wasn't super useful from a policy perspective. We are also now in this situation in the UK where restrictions have been lifted, regardless of whether or not the data was necessarily there to suggest it was safe to do so. That's a kind of a different discussion. We talked about this a little bit last week on Coronapod. You can listen to that if you'd like to. But phase two and phase three of this study is ongoing. What's that going to look like and what do the scientists hope to get out of it? Well, they're really hoping that they will be able to find um, some more information more specifically about the risk of transmission and phase two and three have been rolled in together so there'll be one sort of report coming out and the people that I spoke to on the science board of the program are really hoping that they'll be able to get some interim results out before the autumn to help events organizers work out how best to run these events in a safe way but whether we'll get the whole story by then I'm not sure So the second phase included events linked to the European Championships football. So a number of those games were played at Wembley and similar experiments went on around that in the second phase. And what's interesting about the European Championships is the public health data for England and Scotland, who are two teams that were in the championships, suggests that COVID cases increased quite dramatically shortly after both teams entered the tournament and in Scotland at least have fallen quite dramatically since they crashed out of the tournament. England data is a bit further behind at this point because they stayed in the tournament a bit longer. And so what's really interesting there is that there looks like there is a spike related to the championships And obviously, that can't be just down to people going to the stadium. I think what the epidemiologists think is going on is that the things that happen around football, so it might be socialising with your friends in someone's living room to watch the game, it's just causing more people to come in contact with each other, which is then spreading the virus more quickly than might have been if, if those things hadn't happened. In terms of people actually watching the games, the scientists that I spoke to said, you know, if you're in Wembley, actually, and you're sitting in your seat, you're in the open air, Uh, and you put your face mask on and you keep social distancing when you go to the toilet or go and get a drink, you know, these sort of pinch points where you might actually be indoors, confined into a space with lots of other people in a way that you might not be at your seat where you're just facing the pitch, not necessarily looking at anyone. Those those seem to be the more the more risky parts of watching a sporting event in a pandemic. Yeah, indeed. And it is this something that we've heard again and again and is is reflected by these data is that If you're outside, that's a really big step. If you're, you know, not looking directly at someone or not too close to someone, that makes a big difference. And over and over again, we keep hearing these things, you know, trying to restrict your time indoors or where there's poor ventilation really does seem to have a big impact on transmission or certainly will give you the best chance of reducing your risk of transmission. Yeah, exactly. And and those are some of the headline findings from this report. It's good to have the data and the evidence for that. Now, this is all a UK-based research study. Again, on Coronapod, we try to look internationally as much as we can. We are aware that people from all over the world 
listened to Coronapod, and twice in a row, actually, we've had Coronapods about UK studies and, and things that are happening in the UK. And that's just because these things are of relevance to the world. Is there a similar research being done elsewhere in other parts of the world? The answer is yes, but they also face the same limitations that we've seen in the UK events research programme. Surprisingly, there wasn't really that much data or research findings about this in a pre-pandemic state. I guess no one was really massively looking at this issue before. Now it's suddenly what everyone wants answers about. So there is a group in Barcelona who did a trial at a nightclub. And what they managed to do, which the UK programme hasn't yet managed to achieve, is a randomised controlled trial. So they managed to assign people to different arms under different conditions and work out how the virus spreads. But they too were, were plagued by these same issues of the low levels of virus among the population at the time of the study and the lack of the troublesome Delta variant. And also this public health issue where you have to screen the people going in because nobody wants to actively seed a COVID outbreak because it could be devastating. And so they were able to show that, you know, under the conditions that they work, their events were safe. But it doesn't necessarily mean that actually it would be safe in real life unless you ran under exactly the same precautions that they took in that study. And there's also a big sort of project in the Netherlands, too, which uh, recently has been quite battered um, by COVID because it lifted all of its restrictions in late June in a similar way to what the UK has done recently. And within a few weeks, the Dutch Prime Minister had to apologise and actually bring restrictions back in because the case accounts soared so highly. And this is despite them having this big sort of research programme, which is funded by the government to find out what's happening. And so I spoke to one of the researchers who's been involved with that. And it was a similar story that we're hearing time and time again in this pandemic, that actually the results of this study were not in in time to advise the government. And actually, if they had been able to advise the government, they would have suggested that only vaccinated and negative test people would be allowed to enter the event. And depending on the quality of the ventilation system in the venue, the capacity might have to be limited, but at most it should be about 60%. So some interesting findings there, if anybody actually wants to read them. And that's the key question here, really, isn't it? Which is another thing that we have again, over and over again, talked about. On Coronapod is to what extent the research that's being done, even if it is being done in non-ideal conditions or it's very difficult to get clear results, it's still whether or not the results that are garnered from those research programmes are actually informing policy in the way that researchers would want. And from my understanding, the people that you've spoken to have been quite frustrated, certainly within the UK, about the fact that they've done all this research and it didn't seem to be being taken into account in terms of policy. Yeah, I think frustrated, but yet resigned to the fact that this is actually the way the world works. You know, some scientists that I spoke to were quite weary about the whole thing, to be honest, and I don't blame them. Yeah, it does make you think, well, what's the point in all of that money and time spent on that programme if it's then not going to inform anything, you know? But hopefully maybe phase two and phase three might. Yeah, and actually to sort of acknowledge the limitations that they found in phase one, they're sort of switching up their methods a bit. So they know now from the pilot phases what data they can expect to collect. And actually they've sort of rethought how they could use that data to get conclusions that they might be looking for. And we mentioned at the beginning of this discussion that part of the reason we're keen to talk about this now, as well as the results coming out, is that the Tokyo Olympics starts sort of today. Actually, I think as Coronapod goes out, they've decided not to have any spectators at the events. Was that the right decision to be made? Because it's certainly not the decision that's being made everywhere in the world. It isn't. And the scientists that I spoke to about this 
were quite clear really that actually it has to be a decision at the country level for something like that. So in Japan, for example, compared to the UK, the vaccination rates are a lot lower. So their vaccination program is not as far as advanced as ours. They also haven't seen this sort of mass COVID outbreaks that we have in the UK, which have given a significant portion of the population some kind of natural immunity. So to invite a load of people from anywhere in the world to come together and seed outbreaks across the whole country, I think it was pretty much universally knowledge for Japan's situation was the right call to make. Of course, the potential risk could be seen to be much, much higher to Japanese people. And so it is a different calculation, as everything in this pandemic seems to ultimately come down to a cost-benefit sort of risk analysis. That the decisions people are making scientists can't have certainty in almost anything and neither can policymakers. yeah it's quite depressing really when you say it like that but yeah that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> okay holly thank you so much i'm really keen to find out what happens next in these trials and you know i'm sure everyone is keen to get back to events and so we'll have to hope the events don't end up being the sort of super spreader events of the future but for now uh, let's leave it there thank you so much for being on coronapod and i hope to speak to you again soon yeah thanks for having me Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.